Amen. Be turning in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 6 once more. Ephesians chapter 6. In just a moment, we'll read beginning in uh, verse 13. You know, I'm often amazed at the things that people will do to try to get a little bit of attention. Have you ever been amazed by that? You think about these shows now you see on TV, like America's Got Talent. Now, some folks, they really are talented, and, and it's good to see them on that show. But other folks, I think they kind of let them through just for the sake of our entertainment, because they're, they're not talented one bit. They think they are, uh, but often what they try to do is just something outlandish, you know, to try to make a name for themselves and that kind of thing. A few years ago, I came across the biography of a man named Pliny Wingo, who was kind of one of those types that would just do whatever he could, I guess for some notoriety or that kind of thing. But uh, Pliny Wingo, um, during the Great Depression, he was determined to make some means and really a fortune for himself, but he determined he would do it by walking backwards across the world. Now, in his defense, he had been hit hard by the Depression, and when the local bank took his small restaurant in Abilene, Texas, he was broke and really left with nowhere to turn. So after a few weeks of struggling, uh, he decided that it was time to do something totally out of the ordinary, hence his decision to try to walk across the world completely backwards. Now, he figured that he would cash in with endorsements and pledges from local businesses. He would sell postcards of himself and promote himself, and all the press and the publicity would be priceless, and he would even write a book about it. And so, when he was equipped with only a cane and a pair of glasses that sported these side rearview mirrors... He set out from Santa Monica, California on August 13th, 1932, walking backwards. And altogether, he walked backwards for one year, six months, nine days, four hours, and 12 minutes, logging several thousand miles in the process. He even set a Guinness World Record for the longest distance of, quote, reverse pedestrianism. (laughs) You didn't even know that was a category. Now you do. But in the end, he made all of $4. His wife filed for divorce, and he wore out 13 pairs of shoes. In 1976, he was a guest on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And when he was asked why he did it all, here's what he said. Well, with the whole world going backwards... I thought that the only way to see it was to turn around. (laughs) Now, maybe you can identify when you think about the world we're living in today, it seems like we're living very much in a backwards world, a world where things seem upside down, opposite from the way that they're supposed to be. And part of the spiritual conflict that we find ourselves in as Christian men and women stems from the fact that we are indeed walking in a different direction than the rest of the world around us. Which is why in the eyes of the world, Christians are always going to be a little bit strange because we're not living for the things of this world. Our hope is in heaven. And so this walk demands that we have the appropriate footwear, spiritually speaking, 
And that's the subject of Paul's words in a verse that we're going to consider here in just a moment from this passage, verse 15. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to read with me, beginning in verse 13. In light of the conflict that we're in, the spiritual struggle known as spiritual warfare, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to pro- proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So in this passage of scripture, the apostle Paul sort of outlines uh, the believer's armor. If we're locked in a battle and spiritual warfare is indeed a reality for every Christian man or a woman, then you need to know that God has supplied the strength and the armor that's necessary to engage the enemy who wages war against our souls. And the first couple of pieces of armor we've seen mentioned there in verse number 14, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. But I want you to notice this morning what he mentions there in verse 15, where he says that as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so the third piece of armor in this armor of God that is yours in Christ, it's the shoes of gospel peace, or what I'm calling the shoes of good news. Aren't you grateful for the gospel this morning? Aren't you grateful that you can put on these shoes of good news as you go about your life, as you make your way through life in a fallen world? And so I want to speak from that subject this morning, these shoes of good news. Now again, we've, we've seen the first piece of armor, that's the belt of truth. This was a necessary piece of armor in the soldier's equipment. And uh, truth, basically what Paul is saying here, uh, truth sort of holds everything together in your life. The lies of Satan, Satan seeks to try to unravel your life. He wants your life to come unraveled and fall apart. He wants to trip you up through deception. But Believers have been given the belt of truth. And we also have have the breastplate of righteousness. Just as those soldiers in Paul's day, a very important piece of their armor was that chest plate, that breastplate that they wore that protected their vital organs, such as their lungs, their heart. Paul uses this metaphor and compares it to the righteousness that we have in Christ. And this righteousness is twofold. It's imputed righteousness. And that word just simply means it's the righteousness of Christ which is given to you through faith in Jesus. Uh, The word for this is justification. But it's also imparted righteousness which has to do with the way that 
the righteousness of Christ is practically lived out in your life as a Christian man or a woman. And so there is both an objective element to these pieces of armor as well as a subjective element. Uh, for example, we, we receive the objective truth of God, but we're also to be truthful in terms of our practice. We've received the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's true of every Christian, objectively speaking, but at the same time, we're to practically live out this righteousness. Well, you're going to notice the same thing is true about these gospel shoes that are described there in verse number 15. And so this third piece of armor, actually notice that they're the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so it serves as a picture of preparation, readiness, and if we are to walk as Christians against the grain of culture, if we're to stand against the enemy of our souls, then we need to have solid footing. And that's precisely what the gospel gives us. Uh, one person has said that day by day, the apostle Paul, at the time of his confinement, by the way, you remember he's writing Ephesians from a Roman jail. He's probably chained to a Roman soldier and so his mind must often have turned from the thought of the soldier of Rome to the soldier of Jesus Christ. From the soldier to whom he was bound to the heavenly warrior to whom his life was linked by more real though invisible bonds. And so keep in mind, Paul, he's a Jewish man. He has a firm grasp of the Old Testament. And perhaps more than the Roman soldier, uh, the image that he's painting here is that of the heavenly warrior, uh, the divine warrior, the picture of the Messiah that we see painted in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah said that Messiah, he's the one who's valiant in battle. His people stand in his victory. It's the theme of Isaiah chapter 11 where it says that righteousness will be the belt of his waist. Isaiah 59, you have the same thing. He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And so all of that is pointing us forward to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So it would seem that the basic elements then of this armor of God coming from Paul's pen, it's not simply the Roman soldier, but it's the Lord who is our divine warrior. Jesus is the one who has fought and won the battle, and we stand in his victory. Now that's important that you know that, because Paul's emphasis here is one of participation, not simply imitation. Now, I really tried to drive that point home last week, but listen, that's the whole point in this letter known as Ephesians. He wants these believers to be confident in their position in Christ. And he wants them to know that their salvation, uh, it's, it's all due to the fact that they've been brought into union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So that's why the first three chapters of the book, he's dealing with positional truth, doctrinal truth. And now in the last three chapters of the book, he's dealing with practical uh, uh, implications of that truth. That is, here's how you live your life in the practical sense in view of who you are in Christ. And so that means that you and I, we need to be confident that Jesus is our victorious warrior. Jesus is the one who's faced the devil. He's the one who's triumphed over evil, over death, over sin, over the grave, and we stand in his victory. And I'm to live in the confident reality of that. 
Coming back to the Lord's Supper, isn't that exactly what the Lord's Supper really is all about? Because as we come together around the Lord's table, yes, we're remembering the Lord's death until he comes, but it's an act of worship. It's an act of remembrance. It's an act of celebration because we're standing confidently in the death of our substitute, in his resurrection life, which is now at work in us as Christian men and women. And so Paul's point with these gospel shoes then is readiness. Just like a pair of shoes that you lace up before you head out the door in the morning, you and I are to put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so no soldier was fully prepared and ready for the day of battle until he had first laced up his sandals. So this picture then is helpful for us to understand what it means to be prepared as Christian men and women. It's the same principle that Peter mentions in 1 Peter 3.15 where he says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that you have within you. The word that he uses there, make a defense, uh, in the original language, it's the same word we get apologetics from. He's saying that you and I as Christians should always be ready and prepared to give a verbal defense of the gospel. We should be ready to give a verbal defense to anyone who asks us the question, why is it that you're so different? Why is it that you have these priorities in your life? Why is it that Jesus is so precious to you? It gives us an opportunity then to make a defense, to live with a ready defense. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, love is the final apologetic. And even the way that we as Christian men and women interact with each other in the body of Christ, this is intended to be the final apologetic to the eyes of a watching world, a world that's constantly at each other's throats. If it's not the Democrats and the Republicans, it's, it's somebody else. A world that's constantly in turmoil. And you have the enemy of humanity working behind the scenes, trying to constantly keep humanity stirred up and in opposition against God and his truth. But you see, you and I can stand with confidence in the gospel peace, in these shoes of good news. And boy, we've got an opportunity to preach a radically different message to a world that desperately needs to hear it. So that's the picture then that we're given here of these gospel shoes. But what about the application You say, Pastor, what does it mean for us to put on the shoes of good news? And how do we do that? Well, know that this readiness that Paul describes linked to the gospel of peace, uh, this involves both the defensive element as well as an offensive element. And so I want to look at these these, uh, two different elements, defensively and offensively. All right, so number one, defensively, These gospel shoes give us stability. Therefore, the purpose of standing, which by the way, isn't that what we've been called to do in this passage of scripture? That we're just simply to stand, not in our own strength, not in our own cleverness and ingenuity. We're to stand in the strength of the Lord. We're to be strong in the Lord. We're to put on the whole armor of God. Now look at this, verse 11 so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So you need these gospel shoes so that you can stand defensively. Now, I know that in our modern age, shoes don't serve simply a practical function. 
uh, but they're also worn for decoration. Okay? You ladies know that. Even you guys, you know that. We don't just wear shoes for the purpose of protecting our feet nowadays, but we wear shoes to make a fashion statement. All right? You've got different types of shoes for different types of occasions. But imagine finding yourself in a situation where you didn't have the appropriate shoes. Let's say you arrive for work on the job, construction site, and uh, your boss is required that you wear steel-toed boots to come to work, but you show up in a pair of canvas shoes. Well, you're not going to be able to work that day. You might even get fired. Or say you ladies, you're going on a hike uh, with a group of friends, but let's say you show up and you're wearing a pair of stilettos. Or an athlete takes the field on game day, but he's wearing Crocs instead of cleats. We would say he's totally unprepared for the situation. So even if you show up on time for the right occasion, if you're wearing the wrong shoes, then it can prove disastrous. And so Paul, he doesn't want that to be our experience as Christians. Rather, he wants us to be prepared for the hills and valleys of life in a fallen world. If you're to be engaged in armed conflict, you can't afford going around in your bare feet. You need the proper footwear. And so Roman soldiers in Paul's day, they understood this. They equipped their soldiers with studded leather shoes because they knew that a soldier who could not stand was a soldier who could not fight. And so a soldier's footwear provided him with firmness of hold to keep him from slipping and falling. And it was important that these sandals uh, be studded on the bottom. In fact, the Romans used hobnails to provide traction on their footwear for their soldiers. And those sandals would be wrapped in leather around their feet, uh, up their ankles, all the way up their shins. Now, one thing interesting that I read, that there was a tactic of warfare in those days that involved setting traps in the ground. Say an enemy would take pieces of sharpened sticks and would then stick those in the ground with the sharpened points barely sticking up above the surface so that when an approaching army or soldier would come along, if he didn't have his footwear on, those spikes would suddenly penetrate the soles of his feet. And so that's something that wouldn't just cause pain, but that open wound could fester, it could become infected, and then totally knock that soldier out of the battle altogether. And so it's important that the feet be protected against these traps that were camouflaged so as to cause trouble. Now, folks, listen, there is an important illustration there for us spiritually. Because, again, if you go back up to verse 11... The devil is scheming against your life and mine. He's constantly setting some type of trap where he wants to trip you up as a believer. Now listen, he can't do anything about your, your possession, uh, your position. He can't do anything about the fact that you've been justified and that you're being sanctified, but he does want to war against your soul in that process. And he wants to tempt you and entice you to sin and, 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 and bring you away and, and cause division and dissension in our ranks as the church. We had better be on guard against his traps. And the way that we do that is by putting on our gospel shoes every day that we live. And so I ask you the question, are you wearing these gospel shoes? 
And so, again, the picture here is that of standing firm, stability in life. Uh, We need this gospel so that we can stand confidently, and, and this gospel brings stability in my life, especially as I'm living my life in a world where there are so many competing loyalties and confusing ideas about what to believe and how to live and that kind of thing. So the readiness then that's being described here, this is the deep confidence that comes through personal knowledge and belief in the gospel. I can only stand in as much as both my feet are firmly planted in the gospel of God. Now a couple of things to consider about uh, this, this standing in the gospel. There's the announcement of the gospel to begin with. You say, well, what is the gospel that Paul's referring to? Well, the gospel is is simply news. It's an announcement. That's what the word itself means. It's the same word we get the word evangelism from. The gospel is news. And what do you do with news? You share it. What do you do with an announcement? You declare it. And you see, this news is good news. And best I can tell, there are only two passages in the Bible where feet, good news, and peace all occur together. You've got this passage in Ephesians 6, but you also have a passage in Isaiah chapter 52, verse number 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings news of joy and salvation. If we were to go to that passage, you would see that the context is that of a herald who arrives on the scene, and that herald is declaring news of deliverance, so that the prophet, he presents this image of watchmen bursting into joyful song as they're there on the walls of the city. And these watchmen who had long strained their eyes with fearful anticipation of some approaching enemy army, they now become heralds who were declaring the good news of deliverance to the citizens of the city of Zion. That's the idea there. The same image is presented a few chapters later in Isaiah chapter 61, that of the herald who is announcing the good news of salvation. Now, I want to show you something. Uh, Go to the Gospel of Luke for just a minute. Go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, where Luke records his account of the life and the ministry of Jesus. You know that in chapter 4, he presents the temptation narrative where Jesus is tempted by the enemy in the wilderness, and he's successful and victorious over the devil and his temptations. But along about verse 16... Luke presents his narrative of how Jesus begins his ministry. And according to Luke, he begins it there in Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now listen, guess where he begins reading as Jesus is beginning his ministry? He's reading from Isaiah 61. And look at the, what does Isaiah 61 say? Listen, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. Everyone's eyes were fixed upon him. And listen, verse 21, Jesus began to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is, Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He is the faithful herald who would arrive on the scene with news, good news to declare to the captives. Now listen, why is it so good news? Why is it such good news? Well, it's because of what's been accomplished. Not only is Jesus the one who's heralding this good news, but he's also the one who's going to accomplish something. And so then notice the accomplishment then of the gospel. If you go back to Paul's words there in Ephesians 6.15, notice that he refers to this announcement as the gospel of peace. That is, peace is the accomplishment of Christ. Peace is the accomplishment which is being announced in this gospel message. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that word peace. It's one of those buzzwords in our time. It's a popular concept. Everybody seems to have their idea about how peace is going to be achieved for humanity. But you see, we really need to understand what biblical peace means. The word that Paul uses there in Ephesians 6.15, the Greek word is irene. It's the same word we get the name Irene from, ladies. It means peace. It's the equivalent to the Hebrew word shalom, which speaks of wholeness, completion, fulfillment. You know, the Bible says that when God created the world, when he made the universe, the crowning point of his creation, he creates man and woman in his own image. On the seventh day of creation, God rests from his work and all of creation enters into the rest of God. The Hebrews referred to this as shalom. But you see, Genesis chapter 3 says that the evil one, the form of a serpent, deceived Eve so that Adam and Eve, they sin against God, and now shalom has been shattered by Adam's sin. And the result of that now, we live in a world of turmoil and conflict. We live in a world of upheaval that's brought on by sin. We inherited Adam's nature. And we, in turn, have passed that down to our children so that we're not just sinners by birth, but we're also sinners by choice. And sin results in separation from God. Shalom has been shattered. You want to know why we're living in a world where there's such terrible things that happen that rock us to the core? It's because shalom has been shattered by sin. So that now sin shatters lives, destroys families, ruins nations. And the destruction that's left behind in sin's wake, this is the work of Satan. He's a murderer from the beginning, a thief. But you see, the gospel of peace tells me that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, according to 1 John 3, 8. In just a couple of months, we're going to be singing about it at Christmas time. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So biblical peace then, by means of his redemptive work, Jesus Christ reconciles sinners to a holy God, and the result of that is peace with God. 
Listen, you want to be at peace with God? It's not going to be accomplished through your own striving and through your own effort and through your own attempt at morality. You want to be at peace with God? There's only one way to be at peace with God. You've got to know the Prince of Peace. You've got to submit your life to Him. You've got to turn from your sin. You've got to believe in His death and resurrection and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And the result of that is going to be peace that will flood your soul like you've never experienced. The world says peace, peace, when there is no peace. There's only one way to peace, and it's through the blood of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, verse 20, Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross. Where in the past I was alienated from God, lost in my sins, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but the gospel of peace tells me that now I've been reconciled to God through the finished work of Christ. I've been made new. I've been adopted into the family of God. And he's bringing both Jew and Gentile together in one new man in place of the two. So that the lines of separation and division have all been removed. And Paul writes about that back in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Where he's saying, remember, you Ephesians, at one time you're Gentiles in the flesh. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. But he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now listen to this, for he himself is our peace. And then Paul goes on to use that word four times. Peace. So the accomplishment then of the gospel, it's peace with God. Now watch this. It's only as you are at peace with God through faith in the finished work of Christ that you then can experience the peace of God. You see, you want to experience the peace of God deep within, abiding within. By the way, Galatians 5 says that peace is a fruit of the Spirit, produced supernaturally by God's life in you as a believer. In order to experience that, you first of all got to be at peace with God. That's salvation. That's justification. But you see, each day that I live, I've got to put these gospel shoes on so that they provide stability for me to live my life, which means that no matter the circumstances that may be swirling about around me, I can live in complete peace. The scripture says that he keeps at perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on him. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, can rule your heart and mind through Christ Jesus, your Lord. And so I want to ask you this question. Are you presently experiencing the peace of God deep within your soul? And it's a peace that transcends circumstances. The world thinks peace in terms of absence of conflict. God brings peace to your soul even in the midst of conflict. Because don't forget that Paul is saying we put these gospel shoes on, these shoes of gospel peace, we do it in the context of conflict. You say, how can the two coexist? To experience the peace of God, your circumstances don't have to be just right. That's false peace. Anybody, anybody can be at peace when circumstances are peaceful and quiet. But it's something altogether different whenever all hell is breaking loose in your life. And yet you've got a calmness about you. 
And you've got a peace that it surpasses all understanding. The world can't understand it. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I give to you, my peace I leave for you. Not as the world gives. No, I'm giving you peace in the midst of the conflict. So the doctors give you a diagnosis that rocks you to the core. It doesn't have to disturb your peace. Something's going on in the life of a family member that you love. The bottom falls out of life. Maybe you lose your job. And as difficult as those circumstances are, when you're wearing your gospel shoes, your life doesn't have to fall apart with those circumstances. Because God produces peace that transcends those painful circumstances deep within my soul. Peace like a river. I've got peace like a river down in my soul. So defensively then, we put these gospel shoes on for stability's sake. Now, let me leave you with this. Number two, offensively, these gospel shoes give us mobility. If defensively, these shoes of good news bring me stability in life, then from an offensive perspective, they also bring me mobility in life. That is, not only do these gospel shoes provide me the strength in which I stand, but they also commission me. They also send me out into the world announcing the good news of salvation in Christ. So defensively, I'm watching for the enemy and his tactics and his traps, but I've also got to be ready offensively to counter his every move. And so what does that involve? Well, it involves the advancement of the gospel. You want to know why the church is in the community? Why God placed us right here where we are? He's given us a mission. And that mission involves advancing the gospel. We're to take this good news, and, and, and I'm not to be like a cul-de-sac where it just stops with me. Instead, I'm to be like a conduit because the gospel made it my way because it's headed somewhere else. The gospel came your way because it's headed somewhere else. Got people in your family, uh, people in your extended network of friends and family, neighbors, loved ones, ultimately the nations of the world who desperately need to hear the good news of peace in Jesus Christ and salvation in Jesus Christ. And yet Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Someone sharing? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? Beloved, let me tell you something. Every single one of us, if you know Jesus, you are a gospel conduit. You've been sent with a mission. The gospel brings you mobility. And so I find then in these gospel shoes, this application which reminds me of the progress of the gospel throughout the whole world. And so there's the advancement of the gospel and then notice the adornment of the gospel. If it's a message to be advanced through verbal witness, one of the ways that we do that is by adorning it each day in our own individual lives as Christians. Which means that I've gotta be careful in the way that I live. I've got to be careful in the way that I interact with other people. I don't want my life to bring any reproach on the name of the Lord Jesus. So that means when I get up and I put my gospel shoes on and I go about my day, I'm mindful of my witness. 
I'm careful with my words. I'm intentional with how I use social media because I don't want anybody to have a bad taste in their mouth for Jesus and for what Christianity really is. I don't want my witness to be hypocritical. That's why Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside. So let me just ask you this question as we close. Are you wearing these shoes of good news? Have you done what Paul says there in verse 15? As for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Defensively, as the gospel brought stability to your life, by which you can withstand the enemy's lies and his traps and his assaults on your soul? What does it do for you to know that you're at peace with God through faith in Jesus? Now, practically, are you experiencing the peace of God deep within your soul? Because let me tell you, it's this peace that will cradle you when you've lost someone you love. It's this peace of God that will comfort your heart when you're walking through some season of grief and sadness. It's this peace of God which will produce songs of praise in your heart when you're facing life's disappointments. It's this peace of God that gives you hope even when you're faced with failing health. It's peace so powerful and peace so profound that it can't be explained. It's the kind of peace that can only be produced by God's spirit within. It's the kind of peace that only Jesus gives. It's this gospel peace that gives me stability and mobility in life. And so I've got to let it call the shots. I've got to let it dictate the emotions of my heart and life because that's what it means to put on these gospel shoes. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it be the umpire that calls the shots, that calls the balls and strikes so that you're not subject to just the emotional roller coaster of life with changing circumstances. No, put on those gospel shoes so that you can have stability in life and mobility in life and then share that good news with the world around you that needs to hear it. Let's stand for prayer this morning. Pastor, how is it that we put on this armor? The belt of truth is to be wrapped around my waist. The breastplate of righteousness, if it's to be fastened about my chest. If these gospel shoes are to be laced upon my feet, the question is, Pastor, how do I do that? What is it that Paul means here? Listen, it means you understand your position in Christ as a believer first and foremost. And then secondly, it means that each day you live practically in light of that position. All in the power of the Holy Spirit who's at work in your heart and life. So that when you get up in the morning and you spend time in God's word as a believer and you have fellowship with God, you intentionally put on those gospel shoes and you say, Lord, help me to go about my day with this sense of stability that the gospel brings me and mobility that the gospel brings me. Help me look for someone, some opportunity where I can share Christ and point others to the hope that I have in Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, the gospel is for you. It's good news. And the good news is you can be saved and forgiven of your sin. And you can become a member of God's forever family simply by turning from your sin and placing your faith and trust in Jesus who died and rose again. 
Thank God for these gospel shoes. Lord, in Jesus' name, by faith we put on this gospel armor. Not the least of which are these gospel shoes that help us to stand firm against the enemy's attack, that gives us a sense of calling and purpose as we live out our lives on mission for Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.